The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest of the Society of St. Pius V, and he also serves as the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you tonight? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. And yourself? Great, Father. Great Good to be to back. See you. Yes. Merry Christmas to you. Well, I wish you the same and blessed New Year. Too. Yes, absolutely. Father, any uh, prayer requests to be on the program tonight? Well, I just got word that uh, Cardinal Pell died, and we should remember his soul in, uh, in prayer. And um, there are a number of other dear souls we know who passed away, among them uh, Stanley Franchek, a longtime parishioner of ours at St. Teresa of the Child Jesus Church in, uh, in uh, Parma, Ohio. So please keep Stanley in his prayer and your prayers, as well as his dear wife, Jean, who passed away about oh, 10 years ago or so. And uh, so we'll miss them both. But uh, there are quite a number of others we know who are ill, a uh, little child, Blaze, and his siblings, too. Keep them all in your prayers, please. And uh, there are a number of adults, too. Uh, actually, I could name ten of them right off the bat. But I would just ask you to keep them in your prayers. Uh, the priests know who they are. God knows who they are. And if you just would remember those who are, uh, whose, whose names are... Give it on the Immaculate Heart of Mary prayer list. God would know them all, bless them all. And uh, one one uh, gentleman I'd like to mention in particular is uh, trying to protect his uh, little child, his son, from uh, a very uh, dangerous abuse situation. Um, <clears throat> some uh, case brought to us through one of our one of our uh, dear friends and associates. Uh, so uh, we pray that. Um, He'll succeed in, in uh, arresting his son from that danger, and but also that uh, we'll find the traditional Catholic faith and, and join us there uh, before the altar someday. So please pray for their safety and conversion. Absolutely. The, Thank you, yeah, the gentleman and his dear son. Okay. Thank well you. Thank you. <coughs> Father, a um, few things on the agenda for tonight. One we wanted to start with, though, we, we received um, an email from a viewer, a concerned viewer who... Uh, said some very nice things about the program, said he, he enjoys watching the program, but uh, he was a bit concerned because he said at, uh, at certain times in some of our programs we discuss information that uh, might perhaps not be the most appropriate thing for children to view and listen to. And so he wanted to um, ask your opinion on that, Father, if it was possible to put some kind of disclaimer in the programs or just some kind of alert to, um, to kind of make that known to, to parents who might potentially have their children watch the show that sometimes some of the things we discuss might uh, not be the most appropriate thing for, for children to hear. Well, inevitably. And so, I mean, it's not strictly a children's program. There are things that we discuss that might be beneficial for children. And I expect parents would, you know, kind of isolate those parts and maybe let the children see those. But it's, you know, I consider the content of our program to be more directed toward uh, adults, really. Um, but for the sake of, 
plaguing uh, discussions we have that are about um, moral questions that are perhaps uh, uh, definitely not for young years. I think we, we can in, in uh, giving the title, in uh, listing the, the uh, topics covered in the titles, we can uh, maybe put an asterisk um, by those entries that might be a little more adult and less directed to our children. So we'll find a way uh, when we uh, actually, uh, uh, you know, come up with the titles to designate which are more uh, suitable for an adult year. Okay. Uh, so um, anybody who would look at the title can say, okay, well, this is probably not something I would want my children to to listen to. Mm -hmm. okay. Perhaps that's the best way to cover yeah. it. Okay. Well, we'll plan on it, Father. Thank okay. you. Okay. When we list the titles, we'll we'll find some way to designate that. Sure. Okay. All right. Um, okay. Well, then, moving on, Father. It's um it's been a while since we've talked about COVID, the COVID mm -hmm. situation, and I know you've um, been doing a bit of uh, research, reading on that topic still, and you had some uh, information that you wanted to share in regards to ivermectin and the and the FDA and some of the things mm -hmm. you've been reading there. Well, the FDA now is claiming uh, that. Uh, that agency never forbade the use of uh, ivermectin as a remedy against COVID, um, which is quite shocking to most people, I think, because uh, they understood that the FDA had, well, pretty much banned the use of COVID uh, treatment uh, with ivermectin. And um, actually, if you, if you went to the FDA.gov websites, one would find quite a few warnings against using ivermectin. And these warnings would not only go out to the public, but they would go to the medical professionals. So that uh, when people requested ivermectin be given to their family members who were suffering with COVID and in the hospitals and sometimes isolated in hospitals, um, doctors would simply, uh, well, would ignore their question entirely, or if they responded to it, would say, absolutely not, we cannot use this, this is not proven, it is not approved, and it's not part of the protocol, and no, your loved one cannot have it, period. We even had cases where um, families took uh, hospitals to court, right? And uh, the courts had to uh, mandate that the patient had a right to ivermectin if the patient wanted it. And uh, the medical professionals fought it in court to insist that they could not have access to ivermectin. And it's all because they said that the you know FDA did not approve this treatment. It's not part of the protocol. Um, so how the FDA can come out now and say, well, we never, you know, forbade the use of it or banned the use of it. Maybe they didn't use the word forbid, maybe they used the word banned, but they certainly effectively uh, ruled it out as far as the medical professionals were concerned, who would just stonewalled anybody who wanted to use it. Um, and those who were promoting it were, were sidelined, uh, possibly even threatened, uh, you know, the medical licenses were called into question or put in jeopardy. So I think this is like just, again, an example of blatant dishonesty on the part of government. 
<clears throat> government officials, government uh, bureaucrats, and so on. Um, and it's cost people their lives. I mean, I, I myself, and I, I'm sure there are many others. In fact, our, our listeners might even register on, on their uh, um, email by email if they they know anyone uh, who died following the protocols uh, in the hospital or if they have loved ones who passed away um, because their doctors were originally following the official protocols and would not deviate from them knowing full well that those protocols spelled death for the vast majority of people who were you know subjected to them but uh, I mean I, I had a number of parishioners who, who we lost including my own brother-in-law I actually think that he was subject to a kind of medical murder because this 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 absolute blind following of the protocols passed down from the uh, almighty omniscient FDA and so on, uh, these, these agencies, um, I think really condemned people to death. Um, that's my own opinion of the matter, but what I've seen has convinced me of it. <clears throat> in, in one case, there was a dear lady in... Uh, Cleveland area, whose 80-year-old husband was taken in with COVID, uh, and uh, his condition was deteriorating. Of course, they were following the protocol. His condition was deteriorating, deteriorating by the day. And finally, um, she asked me, well, is there anything that, that can be done for this? Uh, you know, I, I know the protocol doesn't work. I see it happen time and time again. Um, in fact, I you know, depart from the story of the lady once, I, I, I went down to the Carolinas to anoint a man, um, 70 years old. He was a very vigorous gentleman, came down with COVID. Now he was on a ventilator near death. Uh, I went in to anoint him. I asked the nurse uh, who was actually in charge of the floor there, as a male nurse, I asked him, uh, how many of your patients actually uh, survive this protocol? He just shook his head, nobody. Nobody leaves here alive. Um, and I wanted to ask him, well, well, doesn't that suggest you might try something else? Yeah, you know, why, you would think. why just uh, accept these people who are going to die? There's nothing we can do about it. We're just going to basically keep them on ventilators until they do. You know? um, until the ventilator kills them, right? Just destroys their lungs. <clears throat> so, uh, but he, he just laid up, came out and told me, nobody survives this, this treatment. Um, so I, I told the lady uh, who asked me, I said, well, look, why don't you do this? <clears throat> you know, stop by your local, um, well, I won't they say the name of the establishment, but pick up some ivermectin. Uh, pick up some, some treatment, uh, horse dewormer. This is what became famous back then, you know, because it contained a certain percentage of ivermectin. And uh, pick up some, uh, I, uh, some horse dewormer paste. Uh, there are a number of brands available. Uh, get what you can in the tube. It, it usually comes with some kind of a large syringe by which people would load the syringe with a certain dosage according to the weight of the horse and then insert it into the horse's mouth. Allegedly, it was flavored to taste like apples, but I can tell you, maybe apples taste like that to horses, but they sure don't <laughs> taste like that to pig. It's really awful. But in any case, that's if you take it orally. Yeah. And I know people who did. I know nurses who have given it to people who uh, took it orally because they were in danger. And the nurses had good sense and decency to know this is going to protect uh, a patient. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, um, I just told her, look, uh, you know, he's got the ventilator in right now. There's, you can't give it to him orally. 
but you can at least try this. Uh, why don't you take it, put it into like a cold cream case or something so that someone will not intervene if they see you applying it. And uh, just tell them that um, you are, uh, you know, massaging the... Um, massaging the feet and other you know sensitive areas of your your husband is he's lying there sedated and intubated <clears throat> uh and uh you're just doing that to comfort him you know it's comfort care they let this lady because she's a nurse they, they let her in uh to see her husband and she had to mask up and all the rest you know but but she did that she went day by day two or three times a day and each time she went she took this little case with her and she would massage the cream into the, actually, the pulse points in the body. And he began to improve, improve almost immediately. And the doctors involved, especially the, the lead doctor, was absolutely flabbergasted. And as her husband was improving, uh, the, the woman said, the doctor kept voicing that this shouldn't be happening. This is unprecedented. We never expected him to approve. We improve, we thought for sure he was going to die. You know, so the doctor was expressing his, not exactly dismay, I mean, he might have expressed his dismay because the hospital was paid a, a, a surplus for every patient who died of COVID on their watch. <clears throat> and so the hospital had, might have lost, you know, upwards of $20,000 if he walked out of the hospital alive, which he did, actually. <laughs> Eventually, they, they could take the tube out put him on a trach, uh, they put him on a, uh, um, what do you call that? Uh, anyway, a trach tube, I think they call it. Yeah. And um, he walked out of the hospital alive. All the time, the, the doctor was expressing his amazement that anyone had escaped the protocol alive. Um, <clears throat> to this day, I don't think the, the woman has ever uh, explained to the doctors or the nurses involved <clears throat> why your husband survived, but there's no doubt about it. That is why he survived. He had access to ivermectin even in that rather remote way. I mean, there's, again, I mean, the, the doctor said there was no other explanation that he knew of why that man survived. Yeah. <clears throat> but uh, in any case, he's alive today, alive and well. Um, but why, again, as I say, the FDA would claim that we never said you couldn't use this. Well, that's how the doctors took it. It wasn't approved, it can't be used. Flatly, you know, absolutely. And so it was heretical and, um, uh, and uh, you know, just absolutely, absolutely forbidden. That's how they took it. It's a shame that uh, doctors, I guess, are taught that way, that they must not think for yourself. You take whatever edicts come down from the FDA, regardless of the consequences, regardless of the results for your patients. You must follow the protocol. I guess they figured, well, if we don't follow the protocol, we're not going to have a job or we're not going to get paid mm. or we're responsible if something goes wrong. I don't know what the thinking is, but evidently it seems to be a substitute for thinking. Do you, th do you think, Father, that, that that says more about our medical community, our medical establishment than it, than it does about the government? I mean, we can expect the government to be inefficient and, and inept mm -hmm. and wrong, frankly, but um, I mean, it seems the whole... Uh, another thing entirely for the, the medical community to actually go along with this when they see that it's not working. I mean, they, every one of them takes an oath to do no harm, and yet they no, see this. You know, Tom, our medical establishment has been suffering for quite some time, ever since uh, 
you know, that so-called patient-doctor relationship included abortion, yeah. included uh, prescribing birth control pills. I mean, these, these are um, immoral, gro grossly immoral acts. And, uh, you know, doctors do uh, prescribe these things, do uh, advise these things now, uh, almost routinely, yeah. you know. And uh, the whole patient-doctor relationship has been poisoned by, um, again, politics, I'm afraid, because it, politics is behind a lot of it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, unfortunately, our medical establishment often is in the back pocket of the politicians, it seems. That's how it looks. Mm -hmm. So there's this symbiotic relationship between uh, the medical establishment and the political establishment. Yeah. It might, might be a tangent, Father, but um, in re regards to the, I, I don't know, general corruption of the, the medical community, I uh, just just this afternoon was, was reading an article from... Uh, <laughs> From uh, LifeSite News, actually had a, had a piece on a um, doctor. Use the term loosely in Canada, who uh, is a actually an abortionist. An abortionist in Canada has now um, begun partaking in the the euthanasia craze oh, yes. in, in Canada, and um, hundreds and hundreds <laughs> of pa patients, I guess, has euthanized now. And is, is very. I saw that article about two exciting. female doctors. Who are and uh, this this one though said that that this this euthanasia work she has been doing of late is is the most rewarding work she has ever done and and her medical. She is career. responsible for the death of four hundred people. Yeah, and yeah. she finds it very fulfilling and rewarding. And and she's into this so much that she uh, th there was one article where she even she heard of a a patient I guess in a nursing home who. <laughs> Who wanted to be euthanized, and she actually snuck in he, past he didn't security. Qualify, right? He didn't. He didn't qualify. Wouldn't be approved for it. But she actually snuck in past security, brought her, um, her her equipment in there, and euthanized him there, mm -hmm. um, and 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 the uh, in the nursing home. But but brags about this. Um, you know, like this is some great thing. This is the most rewarding work she's ever done. And but this is murder. I mean, this is morally absolutely. murder. Yeah. And uh, this is ghoulish. They're just ghouls. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Who rejoice in putting people to death? Yeah, that's terrifying. Um, yeah, remember the. Uh, anyway, we could go back to the Terry Scheibel yeah. death and the, the the lawyer who was involved in securing her her death and her condemnation. Yeah. I mean, this man. Well, anyway, um, again, I'm afraid of getting off the track. Yeah. There, okay. But uh, one could easily look that up and. Yeah. Uh, in fact, we have an article about that, I think, on our website that we right. link to yes, you know, on the death, the execution of Terry Scheibel. That's right. Yes, we can do <clears> that. <throat> okay, well, um, another topic, Father. Um, we, uh, you know, with the, the recent death of, of Benedict sixteenth, the 16th, which we, uh, we you commented on in the last program, there's been some... Uh, some stories that are coming out now um, of, of apparently there's this so-called conservative uh, faction of, of cardinals and, and the Novus Ordo and um, many of them unnamed, a uh, few of them I guess named who, who have expressed uh, their desire and apparently there's some kind of so-called secret plan um, to, to pressure Francis into resigning now. They said that it was very unlikely he would ever resign with, with Benedict still living but now uh, with Benedict's passing this um, so-called secret plan by these so-called conservative cardinals is apparently um, attempting to, to be set into place now to kind of oust Francis from the papacy to place this, this enormous amount of pressure on him and uh, attempt to, to get him to resign from the papacy so that they can appoint a more, you know, quote-unquote conservative um, pope of Novus Ordo. 
what's what's your your thought on these uh, these theories, these secret plans that have been coming out, Father? Well, I, I did uh, see some reports on this uh, that supposedly there is some uh, a group of conservative cardinals, whatever that means, in the Vatican. Yeah, defined conservative. Yeah. Now it's hard to say, um, but I, I imagine it's it's relatively conservative, relatively conservative compared to Francis yeah. and the people he's appointing. Right? Yeah, and um, they want to oust him. By bringing so much pressure on him that he has, that he's forced to resign. Yeah. I mean, there there's a great deal of um, outrage in some cases, outrage, but there's a great deal of criticism right now, Francis, for his handling of the obsequies for uh, Benedict. Mm -hmm. I think that Francis was uh, just out and out disrespectful. <clears throat> Uh, that he didn't uh, pay the proper respect to uh, to Benedict, and even uh, just blatantly disrespected him in in what he said and what he didn't say. Um, supposedly, um, he told the Vatican staff workers they, they must act as though nothing happened and just go about their daily routine, uh, not even you know allowing them to attend the funeral at first, but then allowing them to stay until 1 p.m., and then they had to be back at work on the day of the funeral. Something to that effect. And also, uh, uh, Archbishop Gambetti, who is like the archpriest at St. Peter's Basilica, uh, allegedly ordered everybody out of the basilica at nightfall and told the Swiss guards and all the rest to stand down. Basically, they were just going to leave Benedict's body lying there in the darkness of a, <clears throat> a closed, empty, cold St. Peter's Basilica overnight which was certainly considered to be, well, again, not showing proper respect. And uh, the story is that uh, members of the Swiss Guard uh, refused to stand down. They, they were not going to, you know, just basically vacate the Basilica as long as Benedict's body was there. <clears throat> and Gambetti, uh, they, they were ordered, I don't know if it was, it was uh, Gambetti himself, but somebody ordered them, uh, Look, if if you're assigned to duty, you uh, you have to perform that duty, and whether you decide to stay on your own, that's your business. But you're not on the clock, and you're not going to be given credit for it. And allegedly, there were Swiss guardsmen who took it upon themselves because they thought it was a matter of basic common decency and respect uh, to stand guard around that uh, that uh, casket. <clears throat> throughout the night, which speaks well for them. Um, remember, all the Swiss Guard had to be vaccinated, right? And um, we were told that everybody who's vaccinated has suffered some heart inflammation because of the vaccine. And uh, for them to do a shift uh, standing throughout the night at the, at the casket of Benedict and then have to do their regular shift, um, that would be really taxing, you'd think. <clears throat> but there are those who did, when it speaks well for them. Yeah. Um, so in any case, you know, I, I mean, Benedict himself was a more conservative, <clears throat> certainly, than Francis, right? But again, it's all relative, because Benedict was, as uh, uh, Joseph Ratzinger, one of the paritu, he was a paritus at Vatican II, and one of the leading movers and shakers at Vatican II, among the the modernists, um, second or third, perhaps only to Karl Rahner, the Jesuit, 
theologian, so-called. Um, so, um, you know, I mean, Joseph Ratzinger came up through the ranks as a modernist, as a militant for the modernists. Um, but it, he was not as radical as most of them came to be. He himself commented on that. He, he himself said that, basically. He didn't say he was a modernist. He just said <coughs> that he was <coughs> among the most progressive at Vatican II. <coughs> and since Vatican II, uh, it seems that he had been passed up by others who had become much more radically progressive than he was. That's his own testimony. So, uh, in any case... Um, but uh, the idea of there being a contingent of conservative cardinals now uh, who want to oust, oust Francis, well, maybe maybe they've decided that with the death of Benedict, it is more uh, likely that Francis would retire. They say that with Benedict retired, it was very unlikely that Francis would retire, and then you'd have somebody else elected, and then you'd have two uh, retired uh, yeah. Novus Ordo Pontiffs. Uh, so three of them walking around in white gowns. Yeah. <clears throat> so the idea was that now this makes it more likely for Francis to follow through on his talk of retirement. Well, we don't know that. But, uh, you know, the question arises, who are these conservative cardinals? Where have they been? <clears throat> just how conservative are they? Are they just conservative modernists? Uh, who have gone along with the changes and they just want, let's say, the more um, respectable changes or whatever, you know, the less radical changes of Vatican II. Um, and if they, how would they put pressure on Francis to resign? They haven't done that so far, obviously, clearly. I mean, one might look at the... Uh, the uh, the questions that were posed to Francis years ago by the four cardinals and, you know, Francis just basically ignored them, right? Uh, what kind of pressure are they planning on putting on him now that might inc incite his, uh, his uh, retirement? And then the question arises, well, what, what, what's going to happen next? I mean, who's going to be elected after him? <clears throat> You've got this, even if you have a contingent of conservative cardinals are relatively small. They've been very Im impotent all this time. <clears throat> Even if they succeeded in getting Francis to resign because they made so much trouble for him, <clears throat> who's going to succeed him? In the Novus Ordo. And, uh, you know, is it out of the frying pan into the fire? If you consider Francis the frying pan, you know, we look at the people he's been putting in place as cardinals now, all pro-LGBTQUI, whatever it is, uh, plus, and uh, they're all very favorable to to um, the uh, very perverse lifestyles. Yeah. So, um, you know, we see he's been positioning people to take over for him, and none of them is a Catholic. Not a single one of them is a Catholic, <clears throat> by any stretch of the imagination. So I can't imagine what they, what they intend to uh, accomplish by this. Uh, the only solution is that everyone return to the traditional to practice the traditional faith. Yeah. First, they have to believe the traditional faith, though. And we don't see much evidence of that. Right. right. Um, <clears throat> not among those, certainly, who've been promoted uh, by Francis to be cardinals in the New Order. Yeah. Um, so, um, 
I would say if they really wanted to do something, anything, uh, to put pressure on Francis or any of the modernists right now, the only thing they could do in good conscience would be to believe the traditional Catholic faith and to return to practicing it and reject the Novus Ordo entirely. I mean, what else could they do that would serve any good purpose? <clears throat> um, <clears throat> frankly, that's what everyone should do right now. <clears throat> but, um, yeah, I think the worst situation would be to try to come up with some kind of a compromise between the modernists and the conservatives that would be modernism with changes that would have like a traditional veneer over them to make them look Catholic. But it would only be quasi-Catholic if there is such a thing. Because they would still be the modernist changes, but let's say the most conservative and Catholic looking of the modernist changes. So uh, this would deceive the most people. Mm -hmm. And uh, there can't be a real honest compromise between modernism and Catholicism. St. Pius X told us that modernism is the complexus of all heresies. So how can you have a compromise between Catholicism and the complexus of all heresies, which is the absolute denial of Catholicism in its entirety, which is really apostasy, by the definition of apostasy. Mm. The, the complexus of all the heresies is the denial of the entire faith, which is essentially apostasy. Mm -hmm. It's impossible to have a compromise yeah. uh, between Christ and Belial, as St. Paul says. Yeah. Um, so, in any case, Tom, yeah, but it's interesting, uh, Dr. Taylor Marshall uh, addressed this very question of this conservative cardinal group wanting to oust Francis or trying to oust Francis. Did you hear that? I did not. But, no. yeah. yeah, Dr. Taylor Marshall had a program on it, which is uh, it's very interesting. Yeah. Now, I understand that in the course of that uh, program, somebody somehow contacted him about having me on his program. Okay. <clears throat> and that uh, Dr. Marshall said, well, he'd like to do that. Okay. Uh, he might have even gone so far as say, I intend to do that. Yeah. I don't know, but it's nice of someone to ask anyway. Yeah. I, I received uh, a number of uh, messages about that. And yeah. Someone even sent me the link to listen to it. So, yeah. But anyway, um, I think uh, Dr. Taylor Marshall is inclined to believe that it is true that there is such a contingent of, uh, of conservative cardinals. But again, I, I, don't, I don't see any evidence of this whatsoever. Yeah. And if, they, if there were, I don't know what they'd even mean by conservative. Yeah. Father, do you think there's, there's any kind of danger in this, this talk, this news, and that uh, it kind of gives people a, a false hope in a certain sense that, you know, things, right. things in the Novus Ordo are, are going to get better, you know, there's going to be a more conservative pontiff that is elected and, you know, he's going to change things around and we're going to, you know, we just have to stay, yeah. stay in the Novus Ordo, you know, the, Tom, I think you're. I think you're right. I think what you're saying is very true. <clears throat> it could very well be, and my, and very likely is just an effort to, to kind of quell everybody's fear and say, look, yeah. this, we have this under control. We're taking care of this problem. Everybody, stand down, relax. Yeah. Don't get upset. Um, stay in the Novus Ordo. Yeah. <laughs> stay doing? in the Novus Ordo. Just stay in the Novus Ordo because we're we going to bring it all back to where it yeah. should be. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, that's a pacifier. Yeah. <clears throat> What's wrong with that line of thinking, though? 
Well, what's wrong with, wrong with that kind of thing is that to think you can rehabilitate modernism and just make or make modernism go away. Uh, I mean, the Novus Ordo is modern is the religion of modernism, and you can't keep the religious uh, the the religion of modernism if you're going to get rid of modernism. Uh, if you keep the religion of modernism, then you're you're going to keep the 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 anti faith of modernism. You have to get rid of the modernist thinking entirely. <clears throat> but if you did that, then that would undo all of the, the Novus Ordo. The whole entire Novus Ordo construct would disappear <clears throat> if uh, you did away with the modernist thinking in the, in the Novus Ordo church. <clears throat> but the whole Novus Ordo was built on it. Yeah. Um, so there, there are people who actually think you can reform the Novus Ordo and still maintain the modernist thinking behind it. That you can have modernists, conservative modernists, who are perfectly fine and good, and that's the solution to the problem. Yeah. They are part of the problem, a very big part of the problem. Yeah. Because, as, as you're saying here, they give people a false hope that you can somehow produce Catholicism out of modernism. Um, it's, it's, it's impossible. It's impossible. Yeah. Okay. But it's impossible to even make them compatible with each other. It's yeah. going to be one or the other. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, Father, we, uh, we haven't really talked about a lot of positive things on the program as of late. There hasn't been a whole lot of uh, quote-unquote good news. Well, I don't know. But um, <laughs> I think a lot of good news is that there, there are many people who have not fallen victim to the Novosoro and have Mm-hmm. Uh, either never stopped practicing the traditional faith or have returned to it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I see a parallel with the with the, with the vaccine. Uh, actually, <clears throat> with the imposition of the vaccine on everybody, it's like it's sort of like trying to make everybody modernist. It's like the Novus Ordo revolution of the church. The vaccine, <clears throat> I think, is kind of a parallel situation here in our society. <clears throat> and there were those who <clears throat> enthusiastically embraced the vaccine and are dealing with the consequences of it, the ill-fated consequences of the vaccine. <clears throat> there were those who were skeptical about it, but they were kind of compelled to give in and go along with it, very much like the Novus Ordo. There were those who joined the Novus Ordo modernist revolution with great enthusiasm, <clears throat> took the vaccine, and to this day they're still going around and you know, insisting that the vaccine is the way to go. You know, this is the future. And they're wearing the mask and they're doing everything else uh, that goes along with this whole COVID thing. Um, and there are those who are forced to take it to keep their jobs. <clears throat> there are those in the Novus Ordo who are forced to, they felt compelled to accept the Novus Ordo. They didn't like it. <clears throat> they, they thought it was wrong, but they went along with it because the hierarchy said so, yeah. because the Pope said so. Because their parish priests said so. And they felt trapped at like, this, what are we going to do? We just have to go along with this. But then there were the few, relatively few, who said, this is not right. This is not Catholicism. And we're not going to do this. Our faith comes first. The, the true faith comes first. The true Catholic religion comes first. And they held on to it, and they held on against the modernist vaccine. And uh, to this day, they're still holding out against the modernist vaccine. What they're trying to do is educate the people the Catholic people who still have the faith that they've been duped by the modernists into accepting the Novus Ordo. And, um, you know, fortunately, um, you can't unvaccinate somebody, but you can demodernize them. 
Okay. And the, the way to do that is to have them learn what the true faith is, what the Catholic Church really teaches, and accept that. And there are a lot of people who are coming, coming to that now uh, because they realize the modernist vaccine is deadly. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we, we see more and more and more people, including young families, now who, who uh, grew up under the Novus Ordo. That's all they knew. Uh, even the parents, that's all they knew. Um, but they are coming back, discovering the traditional Catholic faith, and they, they believe that, and they are embracing that with enthusiasm. Uh, sometimes much more of enthusiasm than the cradle Catholics, you know, of the, of the 70s and 80s, yeah. uh, or even of the 50s and 60s. So uh, anyway, we see the grace of God there. I think that's rather positive. Yes, and um, actually, Father, there was um, something I, I didn't actually get a chance to share this with you yet, but um, maybe my audience would, would appreciate this too. But um, just this afternoon, actually, I was in contact with, uh, with a viewer of, of ours who... Um, has been watching the program for some time, was, was in the Novus Ordo, but apparently had the traditional Catholic faith and began seeing some of the problems with the Novus Ordo. And uh, in the process of working their way out of that, they uh, decided to attend the, the uh, indult mass, the, the Latin mass, and were driving, I think, a couple hours maybe or, or more to, to attend the indult mass for some time. But <laughs> upon uh, watching some of your, your videos where you spoke of the, the issues with the indult mass, they uh, have now ceased attending that. They continue to watch our programs. They actually um, intend to make a trip down here to Cincinnati sometime soon and pl- uh, plan to attend the retreats. Uh, this this summer, and so uh, thank God for that. Yeah, as, as you say, there's definitely grace at work, and there are those um, we hear from them on a regular basis who are, you know, finding their way out of the Novus, out of the mess that is the Novus Ordo, and actually finding their way to the traditional Catholic faith. So um, there's definitely grace at work, as you say. So it's just nice, I think, encouraging to hear stories like that sometimes, and also I think to to give people who might be in that you know same situation, stuck in the Novus Ordo with the traditional faith. Um, you know, and who kind of find themselves at this crossroads, I think it's nice sometimes to kind of encourage them and let them know that there are others who, who have been in their place and they found their way out of the Novus Ordo and they found their way home to the traditional Catholic mm-hmm. faith. So it's definitely possible for anyone out there. Right, thank God for the graces and uh, actually thank them for cooperating with the graces yeah, too. Yeah, so. But we have to pray for that. We have to pray yes. for all of our viewers, all mm-hmm. of our listeners, right? Mm-hmm. Ask them to keep us in mind. Uh, in fact, we have Christmas cards uh, to go to them. Yes. <laughs> Very yes. soon. A little late, but actually it is the Christmas season until February right. 2nd, and we're still within the octave of the Feast of the Epiphany. So it's very timely yep. Yep. that we're thinking of them, and we do thank them for their support. Yes, definitely. Um, very generous. Every month we receive support from so many people. Yep. Uh, prayers, encouragement, uh, financial support, all of it helps. Mm-hmm. It's all necessary. Yep. So God bless them for it. But you want something positive. <laughs> yes, and I know you had something in mind, Tom, so I don't want <laughs> well, to some, you some, Something a bit um, more spiritual, too. We, um, you know, there's with all of the uh, issues that, that we've been encountering in the world today, there's um, traditional Catholics have, um, there, there's been a lot of talk lately about the, the kingship of Christ and how, um, you know, this is definitely uh, the solution to a lot of the ills that we, we face today. And there's um, a very beautiful book that I wanted to uh, point out to our viewers called Jesus, King of Love by, by Father Matteo, who I'm sure many of our viewers are familiar with in regards Did to... Did you the, hold that up a little bit? Yes, uh, yes, and we, we can, we can post, post a link to that as well. Oh, okay. Jesus, King of Love by Father Matteo. Um, 
but but there's there's an interesting section in here, Father, where he talks about the feast of the kingship of Christ, mm -hmm. and he um, actually explains that uh, you know the the, uh, the the movement, the crusade that um, he he played a large part in the the enthronement of the Sacred Heart in the home. He uh, explains how that was was in a large part responsible for Pope Pius XI um, actually instituting this feast of the kingship of Christ and. Um, he explains how they actually petitioned the uh, the Holy Father to 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 make that happen, and um, he explains a lot of the uh, the relationship between you know devotion to the Sacred Heart and this enthronement idea, and how that corresponds very very nicely to the to the idea of the kingship of Christ. But um, we we wanted to ask Father if you could possibly uh, speak a few words on this this theme of the uh, the connection the relationship between devotion to the Sacred Heart enthronement to the Sacred Heart and the, the kingship of Christ and kind of give us a little bit more explanation about how those two are connected. Well, Tom, I'd, I'd certainly be very happy to. Uh, by the way, Father Mateo Crowley-Guevi um, was born in Peru, right, in 1875. Uh, he died in 1960, so he had a good long life. And uh, so much of his life was dedicated to spreading devotion to the Sacred Heart, but especially in the families. And uh, he uh, dedicated his life to spreading the enthronement of the Sacred Heart. Now, you've had that yourself, and quite a number of our Catholic families have had the ceremony of enthroning the Sacred Heart in their home. Uh, Father Matteo writes about that very question, as you say, in his book, Jesus, King of Love. <clears throat> and um, he, he talks about the relationship between devotion to the Sacred Heart and devotion to the kingship of Christ. He talks about these as being, um, about, if I may use the expression, like two sides of the same coin. And so they are, in a sense, one single devotion. Or two aspects of the same devotion to our Lord. And he, he actually emphasizes the word enthronement. You know, when you enthrone something, you put it on the, the, the throne of a king. And that represents authority. So when you enthrone the sacred heart in your home, you're actually using language that pertains to the kingship of Christ in enthroning his sacred heart. Uh, Father Matteo emphasizes that in his uh, very brief, you know, just two and a half pages of explanation there, which I think is very, very beautiful. And I don't know if, if it's possible for us to post that on yes, the website or not, because yeah. uh, no matter what you say or I say, uh, there's no one who can say it better than Father uh, Father. Mateo himself, you know. But uh, you asked me this question as I was traveling over this weekend. What is the relationship between the devotion to the Sacred Heart and the devotion to the kingship of, of our Lord? And I mentioned very briefly, because I think I was running through Atlanta Airport at the time, <laughs> <laughs> connecting airplanes, that the connection really is uh, the love of Christ, because um, authority necessarily has to be governed by love. I mean, we're talking about divine love here, and all authority, genuine authority, takes its origins in God himself. Um, and uh, the, the idea of authority, then, is to govern, but the motive for government is love, to the, for the benefit of the one governed. You know that as a father. I mean, you have, you have authority from God as a father, and you are meant to use that authority motivated by love, for your for your children, uh, when you use that authority for some other motive, it loses its moral authority 
and it doesn't accomplish its good purpose. You know, so all of that use of authority has to be motivated by love. Devotion to the Sacred Heart and devotion to the kingship of Christ uh, really are uh, morally united in that. I might even, if you don't mind, uh, kind of um, uh, connect that with a bit of what we're talking about and still would like to talk about here, even in the program today or, or maybe next week, and that is on marriage, because we've been talking about marriage recently and how distorted the idea of marriage has become. How not only distorted, but corrupted by modern society. And um, you were mentioning to me that there were even uh, those who are considered great beacons of conservatism, right? Today, you were mentioning something about uh, Ben Shapiro, uh, you mentioning Matt Walsh, uh, who was a Joe Rogan mm-hmm. program. They were talking about marriage and how they got it so terribly wrong. Uh, I mean, wrong in light of what we know as Catholics. Yeah. Um, that, that they just couldn't really address the question effectively or even throw any light in the subject of what marriage is supposed to be. Because they don't talk about it from the eyes of God um, in terms of the Catholic faith, which knows the mind of God through our Lord Jesus Christ, right? <clears throat> and this is such a tragedy because, uh, as you were pointing out, these are the people that the conservatives are listening to for their guidance and they have no means to, to guide them. They're like blind leading the blind in this, you know. And, uh, I mean, Ben Shapiro says a lot of good things, I think. Yeah. And Matt Walsh says a lot of good things, too. I think and they're conservative in Bent. Uh, we had Matt Walsh as our commencement speaker one year, and I would have loved to have him back the, the following year. It was very, very inspiring talk that he gave. And um, But... Unfortunately, if you don't base yourself strongly in the Catholic faith and Catholic understanding of marriage, you're lost. Yes. You know? That's what we need to do. We really need to talk about that more. Okay? But if we tie together this whole question of the devotion to the Sacred Heart, devotion to the kingship of Christ, in terms of, let's say, marriage and raising children. I've said this before. You've heard me say this before. In fact, my students have heard me say this before many times. But there, there are basically two concepts that every human being has to gain, has to form in his mind, in his heart, if he's going to save his soul. These two concepts are essential to save your soul. And uh, they are the two concepts that every father and mother is determined to form in their children. And these are the concepts of love and authority. We have to learn what these things mean. They don't come natural. They're not innate in us to understand what these things are. Every single one of us has to learn what authority is. We have to learn what love is. We have to learn to love. We have to learn how to love. We even have to learn how to be loved, okay? How to accept love. These are things that the fundamental concepts without which nobody's going to save his soul. Because the two concepts of love and authority are the bedrock principles that we have to use to understand our relationship to Almighty God the Father. They define our relationship to God the Father. 
And anybody who doesn't understand the meaning of love and doesn't understand the meaning of authority cannot really have an understanding of the fatherhood of God, cannot have a relationship, as it were, to God the Father as a creator and the redeeming creator who sends his son uh, for our redemption. So these concepts of authority and love must be united, must be well-formed in every child, uh, going up, growing up through ad uh, adolescence into adulthood, and must mature so that we have a very solid understanding of authority, but authority must be motivated by love or it becomes tyranny, despotism, it becomes totally destructive of everything it is meant to achieve. Okay? <clears throat> so the connection between authority and love is something absolutely essential for one to love and one to be subject to authority and ultimately one to hold authority. Um, we find the, the supreme emblem of that in the Sacred Heart of Jesus. Okay? Um, you notice I just placed a crown on the statue of the Sacred Heart in our church here mm. because I consider that to be kind of a completion of that thought. You know, um, our Lord's heart is a kingly heart because his heart really has authority over all mankind. Remember what Saint, uh, what Pope Pius XI said in his encyclical, the very encyclical that Father Mateo is talking about here, right? The encyclical that he believes that his, uh, you know, apostles with the sacred heart of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, he, he thinks they have a lot of responsibility for moving Pope Pius XI to declare that feast day uh, in 1925, the feast day of Christ the King. And, um, the, and then encyclical Quas Primas of Pope Pius XI, Pius XI says, Jesus Christ has a twofold right to be recognized as the supreme King and Lord over all mankind Every single human being who ever lived, ever will live, certainly who lives now, right? That they have a, an obligation to recognize him as their king and their lord. In a very practical way, that they, they live their lives according to his commandments. They live their lives according to his beatitudes. They are subject to him uh, as individuals and in societies. But he's the king of all human society called the social kingship of our lord. So that every law, every human law must conform to the law of Christ as given in the gospel, as pronounced by Almighty God in the commandments, and so on. Now, <clears throat> um, Father Matteo cites that encyclical, Quas Primas, to also point out that our Lord has the authority not only as God, which he is, the second person of the West Trinity, the Son of God, but as man also, he has the right to be honored as king and obeyed as king over all, all mankind. Because by the redemption that he wrought through offering his humanity, the Son of God took humanity and offered it on the cross in the redemption for all of us. And so that also gives him an acquired right to be recognized as our Lord and King, that he delivered himself up for us to save us 
to uh, rescue us from death and to constitute us a kingdom, as we read um, in sacred scripture, uh, you know, to give us not only uh, the redemption from hell, but everlasting life in heaven. So this idea that the, the motivation of love and that giving our Lord the role of Redeemer and that role of his Redeemer, therefore giving him the, the absolute right to be honored by all mankind out of, out of just sheer gratitude right, uh, to him for redeeming us. You, you cannot separate these two devotions, really, therefore, of the sacred heart of Jesus, the sacrificial heart of Jesus, and the kingship of our Lord and his authority that our Lord acquired as man over all mankind because of the redemptive love that led him to the cross. You cannot really take these two devotions and look at them as though they were somehow alien to each other. Um, they really are, um, well, two sides of the same spiritual coin, so to speak. I don't know if I'm making uh, the point clear enough, yes. but I think you can translate what I'm saying to, into English, that the two concepts of authority and, the, and, and a love, are they meet perfectly in the devotion of the Sacred Heart of Jesus and the kingship of our Lord. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Father. That's very beautiful, very profound. There's a lot to uh, process and well, think about there, meditate on. But, uh, well, somebody much beautiful. more capable than I must have said this at some time. Uh, Father Matteo would be the first yeah. choice there. Yeah. But I would recommend that everybody read the, uh, the um, entry that you mentioned here. Mm -hmm. In his book, is it almost like an appendix, or is it? It's toward the back of the book. I no, Father, it's um, my. I, what pages are you looking um, at there for that? This is uh, page one forty-five, uh, one forty-six, and then half of, of one forty-seven. It's um, Ooh, okay. I guess the I don't know. You'd call these chapters twenty-two. Um, I'm not. My understanding of the book, Father, is that um, Father Matteo didn't didn't actually pen pen this himself. He um, it, uh, my understanding, at least, I could, I could be wrong, but uh, I, I thought was that in his retreats um, that that he gave, that he preached uh, okay. to to various convents and uh, um, various religious communities, that some of the some of the nuns, some of the monks, and, and brothers would, would take notes. And um, I believe that the first couple of editions of the book were actually published without Father Mateus even, well, even, ha even having knowledge. There's a time honored tradition for that. The Church, Saint Augustine. Mm -hmm. Same way, his preaching would be taken down by a scribe. Really? St. Thomas Aquinas, he yeah. was a scribe, so to speak, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, again, there, there are quite a few. Uh, St. Paul, in prison, St. Luke was taking down his yeah. letters. So, that's a time-honored tradition, <laughs> actually. You know, if you don't mind, um, yes. I, I know we don't have all the time in the world here, but there, there is a part of that um, statement of Father Matteo, um, Toward the end of his, uh, his statement here, it's entitled, The Feast of the Kingship of Our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, it's like, look like it's chapter 22 here on page 145. Do you mind if I read a section no, of that? Please. please. Because I think it really does say better what I was trying to say okay. earlier. But in the words of Father Mateo, this is on page 147, he says, And now let us note that the spirit of this solemn and beautiful feast is the same as that of the enthronement. Some seem to imagine that Christ is to rule 
only in private life. They would like to suppress or blot out those pages of the gospel which show his inalienable and divine right over society and over nations, over all authority and governments. This right has been proclaimed anew before the whole world by the vicar of Christ in his encyclical. He desires above all that this kingship should come to be not only recognized but lived up to practically by all the faithful and our work can help to bring this about as it helped in the establishment of the feast. We must aim at strengthening and developing true Catholic ideals in the family since these are the only possible basis for the true restoration of the rights of Christ. A more profound study of the gospel will lead us to know and obey ever better the precepts established by Christ the King, and to regulate the standards of our social life thereby. For if we frequently repeat the ejaculation, Thy kingdom come, we must accept the obligations it entails. The moral strength required for the fulfillment of these obligations is especially acquired in the family. The root of the social tree and the source and sap of the life of the nation. Hence we must firmly maintain that the home is really and truly the foundation stone of the throne of Christ the King. And only good Catholic families can form the crown which society will later place at his divine feet. Lively and intrepid faith, Eucharistic fervor, sanctification of our daily actions, Faithful observance of the laws of the Church, all virtues, in short, depend on the intensity of the love for the heart of Jesus as center and Lord of the family. And if I may uh, then also uh, cite a very brief statement <clears throat> by Pope Pius Twelfth in his very first encyclical. His first encyclical uh, was uh, called Summe Pontificatus, appeared October 20th, 1939, the very beginning of World War II. This is what he said toward the end of that encyclical. In fact, it's paragraph 91. When churches are closed, when the image of the crucified is taken from the schools, the family remains the providential and, in a certain sense, impregnable refuge of Christian life. And we give thanks to God as we see that numberless families accomplish this, their mission, with a fidelity undismayed by combat or by sacrifice. A great host of young men and women, even in those regions where faith in Christ means suffering and persecution, remain firm around the throne of the Redeemer with a quiet, steady determination that recalls the most glorious days of the church's struggles. Very well said by Pope Pius Twelfth at the very, very outset of World War II. He saw what was coming, but he praised the family. He says the family, he says, when the, the crucifix is taken from the schools, when the image of Christ crucified is just obliterated from public life, the family is where, is where Christ will find himself accepted as king. And that will be his throne on earth, but then the Catholic families. That is why when you read Father Mateo's uh, actually prayers that are prayed by the Father uh, initially in, in throning the Sacred Heart, 
and by the by the whole family then. Um, Father Matteo refers to the home of Mary and Martha in Bethany. That when our Lord is banished from Jerusalem by his enemies, he will find sanctuary in the Catholic home, as he did find that sanctuary in the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus in Bethany. And so we have to realize the Catholic home, the Catholic hearth is really much the essential. I mean, that's the <clears throat> that's basically the essential the, the foundation of the church here on earth. Um, and so we have to do everything we can to provide that Catholic upbringing and, and, and provide that Catholic home as a Catholic haven for our young people uh, so that they can, as, Saint Pius, as Pope Pius XII said, stand unshakable uh, around the, the, the cross of Christ, mm -hmm. the throne of Christ here on earth. Amen. <laughs> I think we can end with that. Very beautiful thoughts there. Um, thanks for being here tonight, Father. Thanks for everything that oh, you do. Certainly. God bless you. Uh, thank you. That's mutual. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so, to all of our viewers. Yes, thank you to all of our viewers for watching this episode of What the Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.